You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Simon Carswell from Washington on Donald Trump's billionaire cabinet and what his appointments say about how he will govern. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel has told her party congress in Essen that there should be a ban on full-face covering veils and suggested that some new arrivals need a course in integration. I asked Derek Scally in Berlin if there's a significance in her timing. On Paddy Agnew in Rome, on the fallout from the Italian referendum and resignation of Prime Minister Renzi. Are the apocalypse merchants right that Italy is heading for the EU exit too? You can subscribe to the full range of Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The drawn-out process of appointing his cabinet members, as much show business as politics, with Donald Trump talking in a rather gung-ho fashion about winners and front-runners, as we hear here. We have a great, great cabinet, I'll tell you. It's coming, and wait till you see what we have next week. Are we doing a good job with our cabinet and our people? We are going to appoint Mad Dog Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. It uh, all suggests that he's overcome his inhibitions about using political insiders and also the very rich, and that, according to the New York Times, he will govern very firmly from the right. Sam Carswell, is this the pragmatic Trump coming out or the political hardliner? I think it's the political hardliner. I think he's very much sticking to his campaign promises. If you look at his cabinet picks, they're very much in line with what he was vowing to do during the campaign. Um, uh, he was he wants an American first strategy and certainly his uh, economic team that he's put together would suggest that that's what he's going for when he when he takes power in 45 days. Um, if you look at his treasury secretary, guy by the name of Steve Mnuchin. He's a former Wall Street banker. He used to work in Goldman Sachs and he's a Hollywood financier. He's given a lot of money to fund some of the big blockbuster movies of recent years, the likes of Avatar and the likes of Gravity, American Sniper. Uh, and he very much is pushing what, Trump's want, what Trump wants to do with the tax code. He wants to reduce the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 15%, which should be a concern for Ireland because it puts uh, the American corporate tax rate within a whisker of the 12.5% in Ireland, which is one of the very attractive things for American companies coming to Ireland. And also, with reference to Ireland, uh, and certainly and very important for, from Ireland's perspective, is he's appointed Wilbur Ross, um, the, the billionaire investor, as his Commerce Secretary. And Wilbur Ross was very much crafting Donald Trump's campaign message, his plan to bring American manufacturing jobs back. Um, Wilbur Ross was very much an opponent of a lot of the free trade agreements that um, Donald Trump was trashing during the campaign, the likes of NAFTA, the deal, the 1994 deal with Canada and Mexico. Uh, He also was very much against uh, China's entry into the World Trade Organization going back a few decades and said that those those agreements were the cause of a loss of, of a lot of the manufacturing jobs. And as you know, that's where Trump uh, won this election in the Rust Belt in, in Michigan and p- uh, rural parts of Western Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin. So this is a man who's sticking very much to his election pledges and, and really promising to govern as he campaigned. And very specifically on, on, the, on the commerce front, we're, we're seeing already the emergence, though, of, 
problems for him in Congress with, with Republicans saying that they don't want to see tariffs uh, slapped on American companies that export jo jobs and that this is not part of the Republican tradition of support for free trade. The problem for those Republicans is, is that uh, there, he was sent to the White House on the basis that a, a large part of the Republican electorate have rejected free trade policies. They've rejected the free trade agenda that was set in place by Ronald Reagan. So Republicans are having to recalibrate um, where they stand on these issues. And the issue for Trump is that if he slaps a 35% tariff um, on the products of a company, an American company that has moved overseas, moved its manufacturing overseas, the issue for, for, for Trump is that he faces a retaliatory tariffs from countries like China and, and other countries. So he could start a trade war with this plan and he certainly doesn't seem to be letting up on the on the aggressive streak that we saw throughout the campaign and things he'd been saying about China. So um, it's going to be a very tricky time for him in terms of putting through some of these policies. And he has um, he has stressed that he intends to move very fast. He intends to bring in a lot of these changes in the first hundred days. And tax reform is an area where there is some agreement between Republicans and Democrats. They recognize there, the tax code in the United States is broken and it needs to be fixed. So it is an area that he could actually uh, get some legislative wins very early in his administration. So I think we're going to see a very fraught um, uh, first hundred days in power for Donald Trump. And on, on the security front, uh, where we've seen his appointment of, of James Mattis, so we heard in, in, in the tape there him referring to him as Mad Dog, and it's a bit worrying uh, to hear Trump, the commander-in-chief, cultivating a sense of Mattis as a sort of loose cannon and, and hawkish foreign policy uh, figure. Yeah, and the irony of this is that Donald Trump said during the campaign repeatedly that he, know, he knows more about foreign policy, he knows more about military matter, matters than the generals themselves, and here he is appointing generals to his cabinet. Um, certainly, um, uh, Mattis is a controversial figure. He's very well respected in military circles. Um, he, was, um, he was particularly hawkish, though, in Iran. It was a reason why President Barack Obama recalled him um, from his control of Central Command. It was cut short in 2013 after only three years in the job because of his stance towards Iran. He re regards Iran as being a very uh, divisive and aggressive um, influence in the Middle East. Uh, but saying that he has uh, said that it would be damaging to U.S. interests if uh, the U.S. were to rip up the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the P5 plus one deal, that um, that Barack Obama pushed so strongly. So that's that's one area where Matt is is, is at odds with Donald Trump. Do Trump has said he wants to rip up the Iran deal and be one of the first things he does when he takes office. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. There's another challenge in appointing Mattis. It, tradition is that you that that presidents appoint civilians to run the Pentagon, and in this instance, he's run, he's appointing someone who um, hasn't uh, who, who who is who's within the seven year. Uh, time frame that's forbidden by law, but uh, in the appointment of a of a military leader, so there would have to be a waiver from Congress. It's not unprecedented to appoint a military leader, and uh, as the head of the Pentagon, Harry Truman did it with George C. Marshall back sixty six years ago. So Trump could certainly do it, and there seems to be a lot of goodwill on Capitol Hill. Uh, for example, the Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman John McCain is an admirer of Mattis, so we don't really see that being as an obstacle. But it, it's certainly an issue in the first in the first weeks of his of his administration. Paul Krugman, the economist, has talked about a betrayal of the white working class through the appointment of, of Tom Price, uh, who is an avowed opponent of Obamacare, and, and talked about the possibility very quickly of 
up to 15 million uh, of, of of Trump's most ardent supporters losing their insurance cover. Yeah, again, this is this is one of the ironies of of, of some of his appointments, where Tom Price, he's um, very vociferous opponent of Obamacare. He's a Tea Party Republican, a six-term congressman from Georgia, and he's an orthopedic surgeon, so he's a medical background as well. And he's chairman of the House Budget Committee, so he's a very powerful uh, figure on Capitol Hill. And he, he he's not just um, he's not just been arguing against Obamacare. He's been passing bill or trying to pass bills for the past six years trying to overrule it. And so he has a plan of action to dismantle Obamacare, which is one of President Obama's signature piece of legislation of his of his term in office. So uh, it's very firmly in in Trump's sights. And yes, it is going to take health insurance away from some of the poorest people that have it. Although it was an issue for a lot of Trump voters, certainly in the latter stages of the campaign, I was hearing it again and again from people who are very frustrated that their premiums were rising and certainly Obamacare has not been uh, has not been smooth sailing for 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 anyone with health insurance. But it, it there is the fact that 21 million, 20, 21 million people have received health insurance who didn't have it before. And they're some of the poorest people in the United States. So uh, this, again, is an appointment that's at odds with uh, Trump's promises his very, uh, to, to an electorate, his very populist campaign to help people who are in trouble. So it'll be very interesting to see what Tom Price as health secretary intends to replace Obamacare with. And this has been a problem all along, uh, hasn't it? Indeed, the criticism by, by the Republicans of Obamacare. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't reconcile the fundamental problem, which is that if you provide cover uh, to everybody, if you require insurance companies to provide cover to, to all, all those who come along looking for it, you then have to, if it's going to be economic, uh, you have to make compulsory coverage part of the system. You have to require people to take out insurance. And the Republicans haven't come up with a way around that problem. Yeah, it's it's a difficulty, certainly. If you're trying to insure people that aren't insured, you have to provide financial incentive, but then you have to penalise those who do have insurance to cover it. So it it's helped a lot of people and it's alienated a lot of people. Um, I think if you go back to when it was passed in 2010, the fact that Obama pushed it through and didn't get some of the con- or didn't provide some concessions to Republicans, for example, on the issues to do with contraceptives, birth control, that a lot of conservatives were alienated by. I think this was very much a democratic bill when it was passed, and he really missed an opportunity to make it more bipartisan. And that's why you've heard uh, Republicans for six years now. Uh, it's really become um, uh, a unifying force amongst Republicans, to, to coalesce Republicans against Obama. And I think if he had given a few more concessions to Republicans early on, he would have less of a fight in his hands. And it's certainly the key target of a lot of Republicans. And it was one of the reasons uh, why the Tea Party became such a powerful force uh, on Capitol Hill. It was the opposition to Obamacare uh, around the country and in, in rural parts of the country. And one, of course, of one of the most um, passionate uh, opponents of Obamacare was Ben Carson, who stood in the election uh, in the primaries against uh, uh, Trump and of whom Trump said some pretty nasty things. I have a quote here. So he said he has pathological disease. Now, if you're pathological, there's no cure for that, folks. And we're going to put somebody in office who considers himself to have pathological disease. Read the definition in the dictionary of pathological disease. And I'm not saying it. He said it about himself before he knew he was going to run for office. 
That was just um, November 2015. Uh, Trump has now appointed him to his cabinet to run housing. Um, How is that going to turn out? Well, it depends who you talk to. Talk to Democrats, they'd be very concerned. Um, Nancy Pelosi came out and said it was disconcerting appointment and disturbingly unqualified choice uh, to lead a department as complex and consequential as housing, she said. So people are very nervous about it. This is a man who hasn't held any public office before, has never held any government role. His own campaign manager last uh, last month was saying that he wasn't qualified uh, to, to run um, to run a federal agency and has said that he didn't want to cripple the presidency with an appointment to a cabinet post, but that seems to be forgotten, as does the clip you just played, some of the things, the very nasty things, and they were amongst the nastiest things actually during the campaign that Donald Trump said. And uh, Ben Carson um, is really being rewarded for his loyalty, and that's what you're seeing as well with a lot of these appointments um, that Donald Trump is making. He's rewarding people like Jeff Sessions as the next attorney general, um, people who supported him very early on in his campaign, Ben Carson conceded, uh, conceded uh, left, the, left the presidential race in March and a week later he endorsed Trump. And at that time he described there being two Donald Trumps, not the, the angry man you just played but, uh, and, and uh, the private man, but he said there's, there's a more a reserved cerebral man who sits there and considers things very carefully. He was very different from the public Trump that we see. So they buried the hatchet very early on. And this is Trump saying, well, I'm rewarding uh, Ben Carson. But he's a strange choice to pick uh, as well, because while he did grow up in inner city Detroit and while he did have a kind of against the odds childhood and overcome a lot of uh, diversity and poverty uh, to become a, a renowned a neurosurgeon. He has never lived in public housing. So here's a man who's in charge of public housing policy across the country. And that's alarmed a lot of uh, Democrats in Capitol Hill, as well as Democratic mayors around the country. Uh, it's all going to make for a very colourful period ahead. Thank you very much, Simon. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Derek Scally, Angela Merkel has just surprised many by calling for a ban on full-face veils, seen as not really in keeping with her liberal embrace of immigrants. But is it actually a departure? Is it not consistent with the view that says, welcome, but come in on our terms? Yes, uh, she's just been delivering her uh, over an hour address to her Christian Democrat Party conference. She's hoping to be re-elected as leader, as she will be, and to be given a strong mandate heading into next year's elections. Now, in her party, particularly the, the conservative right wing of her party, have been very unhappy with her, um, particularly over the refugee crisis, that she was seen as a soft touch, and they wanted her to come out tougher against people who abuse the welcome Germany has extended to them, and that she seems to have delivered them that uh, at least rhetorically, she said that um, a ban on, on the full veil, the full veil is not suitable for daily life in Germany and should be banned wherever possible. 
Um, most people just heard the first part of that and she got the loud, loudest cheer of her um, over one hour address when she said that, which is interesting because during the summer she said it just wasn't practicable. Um, she didn't see constitutionally how this could be possible. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether she's managed to square that circle having rejected it a couple of months ago or whether this represents a pivot towards a, a stronger conservative sort of law and order Merkel playing to uh, the centre right, uh, particularly as they face a challenge from a new far right um, party. So she's basically saying that um, on the one hand we need to deport people quicker if they have no right to asylum um, but on the other hand she was sort of playing a conciliatory note and she was saying look uh, we need to stop, uh, we need to face down people who are agitating against refugees and, and populists and that um, people who shout we are the people well they're not the people, the majority of the society are the people and we need to put those people back in their place, we need to tackle online incitement and, um, and so on. So she was basically playing a difficult role of balancing act. She was on the one hand trying to be the centrist politician she's always been, but uh, basically saying to her party, listen, I know I've asked a lot of you in the last year, uh, and that's just a reflection of the times we're in. The world is less secure uh, and less stable uh, at the end of 2016 at the start, but the unspoken message was, I'm your woman to see you through the next year and perhaps the next four years after next September's elections. And and the timing and the context of our call, of course, is, is particularly related to the Italian and Austrian votes. Exactly. I mean, she didn't mention Austria by name. She did mention Italy. Um, and she said that uh, it is absolutely we, it is absolutely ridiculous that uh, that uh, people are now calling. Well, she said it would be actually negligent after the experience of the euro crisis to to want to forget the lessons. And she said um, we must stick to the rules that we gave ourselves in the euro crisis. Um, so that's basically a notion that somehow people should be loosening up on on the ban on budget deficits to sort of stimulate uh, these problematic countries back to growth. She's basically saying, not with me, you won't. And um, that seems to be um, the lesson she's sending out there. Uh, she was trying to speak out against populism and anyone offering simple answers to complex problems. Well, there's a, there's a sort of paradox in, in her praise for Renzi on, on the one hand, at the same time very firmly rejecting his demand for uh, uh, a curbing of the austerity programs. Oh, indeed. I mean, this is the this is the problem. She's she's sort of she's extended the hand to him, but she, her hand has always been empty. Um, but uh, Wolfgang Schäuble is, is uh, today uh, in Brussels, and he's maintaining that strict uh, German line that we uh, anyone who who thinks they can spend their way out of crisis is a disaster. They pointed. Italian banks and they say these banks are highly indebted. Do you really think more debt is the, is the answer? So Germany is saying, look, we're balancing our budgets. We think you should all do the same. Our economy is doing well. Record uh, low jobless rate, steady growth. And, and Germany is basically sticking to its guns, even if that, as Mr. Renzi seems to think, is uh, causing collapse of governments around Germany. And a very firm line sticking to our guns again on the negotiating position with the UK. No concessions on the four freedoms. No, she she said nothing new there, but it was quite firm. She said we won't allow cherry picking, um, and that that was basically the the, the line she's had so far. And uh, if Britain thinks it can get around that, uh, they will be dealing with Merkel uh, next year. Thank you very much, Derek. Italians have voted by a substantial majority against Matteo Renzi's plans for constitutional reform, or was it against Renzi himself? He staked his future on the vote, and now will resign after the budget. 
Paddy Agnew, our Rome correspondent, was this about the Constitution or about the future of Europe, as many commentators have suggested, or about Renzi? Well, I think, uh, Paddy, the simple answer and the obvious answer, it was about all three. I think foreign observers were very quickly tempted to uh, put this in the the, the hat-trick of votes, Brexit, Trump, and now the Italian uh, referendum, which is an expression of populist Euroscepticism and populist protest. To a certain extent, there was that in it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But um, I think the Italian electorate is more uh, sophisticated than uh, people give them credit for. And I think the, the vote here, uh, had Mr. Renzi been able to present a decent package of constitutional changes, had he been able to convince his own party, because a critical factor in his defeat was that large number of voters uh, for the uh, PD, the Partido Democratico, voted against them. Uh, had he been able to, you know, to, to put those two factors together, he, he might well have been able to contain the, the protest vote and the Eurosceptic vote. But you put the three together, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's never going to win the vote like that if uh, part of his own party's not with him. But uh, Renzi's now finished, busted, flush. Uh, presumably his time in politics is coming to an end. Oh, it's hard to say that. He's only 41 years of age, Adi. He's very much, you know, he's a, he's a street politician. He's a, a good uh, campaigner. He's good in the hostings. He's uh, good in dealing with people. I'm not so sure how much of a, a staff, uh, statesman he is. I'm not sure how good he is uh, for the long haul or how good he is for dealing with complex briefs and for complex issues uh, such as constitutional change. That's another question, but I don't think he's going to go away. He apparently was very tempted to give up everything immediately in the uh, aftermath of Sunday's defeat. That came to him as, uh, uh, obviously, as a major, major shock. I think he'll, uh, he clearly, he now seems to have rethought that. And because remember, he's the, he's not just the Prime Minister, but he's also the uh, leader of the Partido Democratico. They have a, a crunch meeting tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow Wednesday, and it, it uh, was expected that he would maybe o- o- uh, offer his resignation at that meeting. It seems he doesn't intend to do that now, so uh, we might be looking for a, a night of a long night in the party Democratic tomorrow. And what's the prospect for, for a general election in, in uh, 2017? Well, the situation is very uh, confused just at the moment uh, in the sense that uh, State President Mattarella, the, the ball is in the, very much in his camp, in his court at the moment, but he's not enthusiastic about an early general election. There's an absolutely Kafkaesque, absurd problem uh, in relation to electoral legislation because uh, as, as things stand, you have two different electoral laws applying to the two houses, the Senate and the uh, lower house. That was because uh, Mr. Renzi introduced new uh, electoral legislation for the lower house, taking it for granted that his referendum would win and you wouldn't, wouldn't have to have legislation for the upper house. Now you, now you clearly do. And uh, there's going to be a, a lot of argument about what laws uh, will apply. Uh, are they constitutional? And do we have to the same one applying to both houses? Or can we vote with a different law uh, in each house? And that's going to go on for a while. In, in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, Mattarella may well appoint um, a caretaker figure, an institutional figure, to keep the, the ship on course, and that would be somebody like uh, Pietro Gasso, the uh, president of the Senate, 
the finance minister, Gerkara Padovan, uh, the arch minister, Dario Franceschini, foreign minister, Gentiloni, they, they could all be called in to sort of handle the thing temporarily. Until, and, uh, and the idea uh, would be a, a technocratic government rather than a political government. Well, technocratic government's a dirty word around here now. You're not allowed to say that. But yes, to some extent, we'll have to do that. It certainly would not be a government that would have a huge uh, political mandate to do very much. Uh, and in, in, in that sense, the shorter it lasts, the better, really, because uh, all the opposition parties, obviously, uh, those who were seen as the winners of uh, Sunday's referendum, uh, the uh, Northern League, Mr. Berlusconi's Sports Italia, and above all, uh, the Five Star Protest Movement, they are all clamoring for an immediate general election. And presumably uh, their prospects uh, in the in the wake of this are, are exceedingly uh, uh, strong, both uh, Beppe Grillo's five-star movement and, and the Northern League on the far right. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, of, of the three uh, parties that opposed uh, Mr. Renzi here, Forza Italia is the only one that wouldn't necessarily do well, I don't think. If you're to believe any... Uh, all the information we're getting from the uh, results on Sunday, uh, the big winners in uh, any general election that's held immediately will be the uh, five-star protest movement. I mean, I'll just give you one that. There's a, we've been bombarded with data about the, the vote, but uh, 80% of uh, people under the age of uh, 30 who voted on Sunday voted against Mr. Renzi. And they are the natural constituency of Beppe Grillo. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting as well, of that 80%, uh, 50% said they didn't vote against Mr. Uh, uh, Renzi in, per se. They voted against his lousy uh, package, of, uh, package of changes. Grillo is, is uh, strange politics. He, it's difficult to describe him as being on the left. On, in fact, he's, he's on the right on, on immigration issues uh, and the like. And he's also very strongly opposed uh, to the euro and has talked about a referendum on on, on the euro, but one can't imagine Italy voting uh, in a referendum to to leave the euro. No, not at all. I mean, that's one of the things I, I've been at pains to try and explain to people in the last couple of days is that you know this vote is not a eurosceptic vote, and don't for a second think it is. It's an Italian vote about the Italian issues, about a poor package and a divided party. But you uh, are you are you are, however, because the three major forces against Mr. Renzi and Sunday. Northern League and Forza Italia five-star protest, because they were, they are all, to, in their different ways, Eurosceptic. Everybody saw it as a, a, a Eurosceptic vote. As for, as for Mr. Greeley, you're absolutely right to say he's, um, you know, when he arrived in the scene, uh, first arrived in the scene, particularly when he, he, the Movimento got such a big vote in the 2013 general election, people immediately looked at this and thought this is a protest vote, and clearly it's a protest from the left. But it wasn't. It was a protest from both sides of the house. And you absolutely heard Grillo himself, his tendencies are very much on the right. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about the banking situation because a lot yeah. of the commentary has suggested that the, the, the vote is actually uh, almost terminal for uh, one particular bank, Banca Monte di Pusci di Siena, which has to be rescued by the end of the week. Is that is the thing situation as critical as that? Well, it's pretty serious. Uh, Monte Basque di Siena has been in trouble for some while, and it's been put on hold a bit until the referendum was over. But they need to put together a lot of capital before the four years end, uh, which gives them about a month to do it. Uh, and the entire banking sector is, you know, is is uh, in very serious difficulties. It's got a welter of 
billions of, of NPLs, non-performing loans, which are basically the product of years and years of a clientelist style of running the bank. In other words, you continue to, and I'm talking about nationwide banks, you, can, you continue to lend money to your, your pals and your friends and the people you knew, uh, irrespective of whether or not they were uh, good loans and whether it was done, you know, it wasn't done on a meritocratic basis at all. It was uh, done on a clientelist basis. And that has given the Italian banking system uh, all sorts of problems. Thank you very much, Paddy. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Paddy Agnew and Derek Scally, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>